College Hill above Eastern Pennsylvania and today, New York City. Welcome to the Tim Danahy Show here at Danahy.com, and we're a proud member of the Coffee Party USA Network. And over the past uh, 50 or 60 years, there's been a, a subculture in America that, that's had a surprising effect on, on all of our lives. Some good, maybe, some maybe not so good. Uh, but regardless of the judgments, um, the subculture's influence uh, can be seen in technology, religion, philosophy, um, arts, and, and even in, in the operations of government. And the subculture that developed here in America uh, is the industry and culture of psychedelic drugs. And now there's a new book entitled Heads, a biography of psychedelic America. And its author, Jesse Jarno, is here with us today. Uh, Jesse, welcome to the Tim Danahy Show. Thanks so much, Tim. Really happy to be here. Well, you know, whenever I saw this book uh, listed in the um, uh, spring publications, and I said, holy smokes, how, how weird is this? One would never think of this as, as a subject of a book. But um, really, when we talk about the psychedelic movement, um, we're, we're talking about recreational drugs and, and LSD, aren't we? Well, yeah, in some ways, but, you know, recreational is kind of a, a narrow term to describe the way that people use these, these substances. Um, you know, one thing that's really come up, especially in the last decade or so, is that these, these you know, LSD and mushrooms especially have extremely medicinal value, um, both, both psychological and, and, and otherwise. Um, and, and they have great spiritual value, which is something that came up in the 60s, which a lot of people sort of refer to as one of, you know, the country's great spiritual awakenings. Um, you know, psych psychedelics can be fun, but they're also really intense, you know, or, or they can be. And then, you know, re recreational isn't always the, uh, the term I've used to describe experiences with them. Well, you mentioned uh, almost religious experience. Didn't one of the, the founders of the movement, and I believe it was Hoffman, uh, if, if uh, my reading memory serves me well, that he kind of regret, his only regret was he felt that the, this uh, psychedelic religion, and I put, I put quotation marks around religion, uh, but it may have harmed traditional religion. Did I, did I catch that out of your book there? Yeah, no, that was, that, that was something that he, he did worry about. But then, you know, that, that um, anecdote is related in the context of him going to, um, I believe it was, it was either a rave or a big dance party uh, in Switzerland near where he lived, and seeing that that event had massive spiritual value these people sharing this ecstatic experience together and dancing and sort of throwing you know moving their energy towards this one this one ecstatic goal and and he he saw that the end you know some of the energy that had been diffused maybe from traditional religion has shown up in more you know do-it-yourself kind of ways which i think is actually kind of a great you know you know this example is european but i think that's kind of a great american tradition as well is sort of the, the do-it-yourself do-it-yourself spirituality. Well, the fact that Hoffman was 100 years old whenever he was making these comments also uh, speaks well of him, I think. Um, but uh, also, I, I, uh, just so I get an understanding, you know, I, I am, you know, I, I'm one of these people that uh, never did drugs, never do anything like that. I, I, I guess I, I've led a, a boring life, but I'm at peace with myself. Um, but but drugs were, were primarily discovered uh, based on naturally occurring plants, weren't they? Yeah, well, yes, exactly. Um, they're, you know, have traditional folk uses going going back centuries. Some of them were, you know, discovered in labs. Some of them were, you know, discovered kind of, you know, by, through trial and error over, over long periods of time. But for the most part, 
um, psychedelics are, are naturally naturally occurring things. Well, just to make the leap then, because I, I want to talk about the government's role on this a little bit, and, and it will kind of tinge it in there or, or, or flavor it every once in a while. How did the government get into the business of regulating naturally occurring chemical compounds? I mean, you know, it's, all, it's a long, complicated story that goes back far further than, than psychedelics, you know, you, you get back into, into the, you know, you know, marijuana tax laws and you get back into, to, to regulating opium. Um, and a lot of it is, you know, different forms of social control. And, you know, I, I would argue that a lot of the times when the government is regulating drugs, they're not doing it for the reasons that they're necessarily publicly stating. Um, and I think it's, I think each individual substance has, has a lot of complicating factors about it, um, so there's not one universal reason why why a certain you know why substances are banned across the board necessarily. Um, so yeah, so I do think it gets complicated. But I think in the case of psychedelics in the '60s, which is when all of you know psychedelics were made Schedule One drugs, which means they have no redeeming you know medical value allegedly. Um, a lot of that was it was really was a social scare and was was you know, a reaction to kind of the, the first stirrings of what I mentioned before, this this sort of spiritual awakening. Well, and I think, you know, that can be probably a pretty scary thing to witness, um, in all fairness. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, if you've, if you've ever experienced anybody who, who's been, you know, taking, taking psychedelics, but they're, you know, sometimes the, 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 the days and, and, and weeks around that part of their lives can be, kind of open-ended in questioning and I, I can you know I can really see why if a lot of people were doing these things all at the same time there was that reaction but I do think it was kind of a, a sort of a, a almost a knee-jerk reaction in some ways but it, but it does make sense well you, you know you bring I think it was on page uh, 302 of the book and, and you talk you quote a government official um, you know and I was going to ask this later um, a, a government official you know said why he felt it was uh, uh, not a good thing, and, he's, uh, and if I might read from it uh, and quote him, uh, he, he said there's a lot of money flowing around, too, with all kinds of odd ramifications, and then you, you quote a government investigator. says, none of them have jobs, never want jobs. They don't think of things like getting a house and a family and a car. Uh, I invest in assets and money and gold jewelry. LSD dealers could care less. None of them. They don't have credit cards. They don't have jewelry. It's just a free lifestyle. Well, that, that's kind of applying a, um, uh, uh, an economic or moral judgment on the psychedelic movement, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd agree with that. And, you know, from my, my personal point of view, I don't, I don't see why not, not having a car or a house or, or things like that is, you know, why those are necessarily bad things. You know, but you know that that that's part of part of what goes on with psychedelics is that there is this broader world that's connected to them that is a counterculture that is something that that is existing in parallel to sort of you know the dominant American American lifestyle where you know people do try to live off the grid and sort of out of out of realm of of observance and things like that. It's you know it, it is it's an alternate America and that's what that's what psychedelics can imply. Not all that they imply, and certainly there there are a lot of psychedelic users who are perfectly integrated into into American society, and it's just 
you know, a spiritual or creative practice that they employ. But, but, you know, psychedelics in the counterculture is, you know, a real tangible connection that's, that's gone back a long time. And that's, you know, that's sort of the, the history of that thing that I'm trying to unravel, which to me is kind of, it's another version, it's another in like a long line of American utopias. And this one is, you know, kind of a perfect one for, for that, you know, the post, post-war space age, better living through chemistry. It's, it's, you know, well, kind of started at the, the perfect historical moment and just kind of extended in really unpredictable ways since then, which is what sucked me into the rabbit hole of writing this book. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, well, Jesse, uh, just you mentioned the, an alternate lifestyle and everything, but but or culture, alternate culture, I believe is the term you used. Um, uh, this culture, though, I I, I mean, it's it spread through music, but it has um, laboratories, it it has uh, uh, distribution systems, it has marketing, and, and I was stunned at the creativity employed and the grassroots almost guerrilla nature of this <laughs> economic system uh, can, can you describe the the economic system i guess first and then just and then maybe make the transition to say how music facilitated or encouraged yeah. this this uh, alternate system sure i mean so you know to sort of tie it back to what i was just saying there's this notion of utopia that goes along with with psychedelics where you know, the feeling of, of, of saving the world and, and creating something, you know, a bigger, a better place. Um, and I think that really is the type of thing that fired the imagination and fired, you know, the, the inspiration to create this kind of, like, alternate economic system. And that economic system is, you know, sort of using the sales of, of drugs to fund things like bands and to fund things like underground newspapers and to fund, you know, sort of communes and food programs. There's a, you know, sort of an intimate relationship with um, the notion of, of just free in general, which sort of stre- stretches back to this group in San Francisco called the Diggers, who were kind of the, the philosophical anchor at the center of, of the early psychedelic spiritual movement, something like that. Um and that economic system is, is, is really in, intended to be kind of um, an alternate system of currency or something like that, where, you know, dr- drugs become a way, you know, become a thing of value that you can exchange. But, you know, and, and music sort of fits in with there, too, fits in there as well, um, both as a source of money itself, you know, bands performing and, and using that money to, 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 to circulate among, you know, poster artists and technicians and their road crew and things like that. Um, but also it's this, you know, generally unifying community factor where it's this big tent that, that everybody in this broader community can, can gather under. Um, and that's what the Grateful Dead really became over the course of their 30 years touring was this sort of central node where all of these things could exist in, in one place. Um, there wasn't, you know, an internet really yet at that point and, and, you know, that you could just go on to and find, find the other people that were interested in, in the sort of subcultural or countercultural pursuits, the same ones that you were interested in. You could go to a place like a Grateful Dead show where it was sort of this big freak flag for weirdos and, you know, drug dealers as well, but people who are into, 
you know, Buddhism and people who are into concert taping and people who are into various kinds of, of painting and, and, and art and art making and jewelry and crafts and things like that would all kind of come together under under the Ten to the Dead show. And that became like not just a theoretical economic system, but this real actual existing thing that was out, you know, traveling around the United States several months a year and then sort of, you know, diffusing out into different places when the dead weren't on the road, but, but still existing. And to me, that still, that, that market, that energy force still completely exists and, and comes together in, in, in different ways. Um, and manifests in places like the, you know, the the Silk Road, which is the uh, the the dark web uh, marketplace where people buy drugs online. It's not called the Silk Road anymore, but sort of the, uh, but uh, you know, online crypto market. And it's all it all connects up to the present as well. Well, so, uh, uh, I, I'll tell you, Jesse. <laughs> yeah, well, no, no, it's fascinating. But I'll tell you what, Jesse. Let's break for a commercial. When we get back, uh, I do want to bring this forward a little bit uh, to mm-hmm. to to today because um, for, for for the listeners, it's going to sneak up on them about the the psychedelic uh, uh, culture and its effect on on even this show and this recording. And so it's quite fascinating. Uh, and you we're talking with Jesse. Jarnow, and am I pronouncing that right, Jesse Jarnow? Yep, yep, J- definitely. Jesse Jarnow, who is the author of Heads, a biography of psychedelic America, and you're listening to him here on the Tim Danny Show. We'll be right back. For a while, not to have to drop it, man, or not to cry. So how am I to stop it? Keep it you preserve a nation, one community at a time with shared knowledge and an informed electorate, with many voices speaking with civility and integrity. And we will preserve our nation when we participate, we learn, we discuss, we vote. We are the Coffee Party USA. Join us today. CoffeePartyUSA.com Teddy Roosevelt said, of all forms of tyranny, the least attractive and the most vulgar is the tyranny of mere wealth. This is why antitrust law and competition is essential to America's economic health. This is why the Organization for Competitive Markets works to reclaim competition for farmers, ranchers, and rural communities across America. We believe our duty is to advocate a just role for government in the agricultural economy, an enforcer of rules necessary for markets that are fair, honest, and accessible. The Organization for Competitive Markets. Learn more at competitivemarkets.com. Welcome to this episode of Danahy.com's American History Minute, a one-minute story about little-known events. And here's today's story. In 1942, the U.S. Army sent out an emergency call for citizens with a gift for mathematics. These citizens gathered at the University of Pennsylvania and tirelessly calculated the differential equations, accounting for the many variables affecting weaponry. These citizens prepared the firing table for every howitzer, every mortar, every bomber, and ship-mounted cannon in World War II. The weapons, 
that won the war for the United States. These mathematically gifted citizens went on to debug and program the first electronic computer, the ENIAC. And after the war, these mathematically gifted citizens were shunned by the military computer industry. These citizens were cropped from recruiting posters. Why? These mathematically gifted citizens who developed the field manuals that guided the weapons that won the war were high school girls. High school girls recruited to serve the nation while the men fought overseas and the older women worked at our factories. These girls helped win World War II and establish the modern information technology industry. These high school girls were called computers, and the name stuck. This has been provided by the Tim Danahy Show. Please like us on Facebook at Tim Danahy Show and follow us on Twitter at hashtag Tim Danahy Show. And thank you for listening to Danahy.com. Welcome back to the Tim Danahy Show here at Danahy.com, and, and we're talking with Jesse Jarnow, who is the author of a, of a surprising book, um, surprising in, uh, in, in a number of ways. The book is Heads, A Biography of Psychedelic America, but I was telling Jesse uh, before we started recording, um, one would think that this, this is about 400 pages, uh, absolutely fascinating because it's so well-researched. The timeline is well. The connections are complete. Um, the, the, the progression, I mean, in, in movies or in books or in, in, in well-done literature, there's something called a character arc. And there's a character arc, uh, arc of, um, of uh, the psychedelic uh, America, insofar how it starts up as a grassroots um, movement uh, by a few people and how it grows into really what has become... Um, an integral part of, of today's life. It, it, it's, it's fascinating. It, it's something to which I had no exposure, no idea, and to be able to read a book so well done is absolutely um, uh, a treat for me. And so, Jesse, congratulations on uh, uh, putting together such a well-crafted book. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tim. I, I really appreciate that. Well, it, it is sincere. And, uh, but, and I talk about bringing it forward a little bit. And um, uh, and you alluded to it somewhat uh, prior to the break, and that was uh, the internet. Now, I, I read in the book that uh, things that we use ordinarily, and and we'll, we'll do the internet and and talk about the psychedelic drugs influence on it. But there, I believe I saw a quote in there that said, in es- in essence, there would be no internet or no social media. If there was an LSD, the, some of the inspiration to it came to some of the early founders of the Internet uh, simply based on their psychedelic experiences. Would that be accurate? Um, sort of. I think there would probably still be an Internet without LSD, but I think the culture of the Internet and the vibe of the Internet and just sort of the thing that we think of as this, you know, huge interconnected system of, of pieces and, and places and, and technologies, I think that would be extremely different had a lot of these technologies not originated in, in California in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, 
a lot of a lot of the very basic um, pieces of internet technology came out of places like the Stanford Artificial Intelligence Lab um, at Stanford, which was a hotbed of bedheads and a hotbed of of, of psychedelics. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's a little hard to you know. I talk to a bunch of these guys, and it's it's a little hard to to draw the one to one connection. Like, oh yeah, I took LSD, and then blank happened. But a lot of them would talk about sort of dead shows and psychedelics in that world is kind of this, you know, sort of parallel escape universe from the technology that they were researching. But then the technology they were researching became a way to, you know, they that they, they were able to use that to channel it back into their interests and things like the Grateful Dead. And in doing so, just sort of instinctually came up with all of these things that we now use just on a daily basis. Like one example is the uh there are these dead fans at the Stanford lab who wanted to know the words to dead songs because the dead never put lyrics on any of their albums. So they started a collaborative lyrics file that they shared on the, the central hard drive at Stanford, which is just a, a thing that I think a lot of people would just do now without thinking about it. Start like a shared Google doc to, you know, to pool common information. And that it's just, that they were the first people to have that technology available to them. And part of the reason for that was because they were the people thinking up the technology and they were in this milieu of psychedelics and the dead and things like Stuart Brand's whole earth catalog, which was this enormous book that was designed for people who are living in communes and living off the land as a sort of a catalog for, you know, ways to build your own geodesic dome or, you know, ways to install solar panels or water filtration systems. And it was all of this really cutting edge technology that, and it, it kind of became this blurring point between, you know, these computer scientists um, and these people who are living in communes in, in Northern California and psychedelics was, was a, a central bonding point between all those things that, that made those lines blur. And that, to me, that's kind of the, the, the connection between the computer world and, and, and psychedelics. Well, there's one person that you, you mentioned a couple times in the book uh, for whom I have great respect, and his organization has been on the show once or twice, and that was a, a John Perry Barlow uh, oh, great. Uh, yeah, of, yeah. of the Electronic Frontiers Foundation. Uh, can you talk about him? And um, his his organization and and his relationship to the psychedelic movement. Yeah, sure. Well, so John Perry Barlow was uh, a lyricist for the Grateful Dead, uh, going back to the early seventies. Even before that, he was a uh, student of, of Timothy Leary's or an acolyte of Timothy Leary's, um, and was kind of this sort of subtle pivot point in the early psychedelic world. He was one of the only people who was kind of like an ambassador between the West Coast Grateful Dead world and the East Coast Timothy Leary world, who, who sort of had a couple of standoffish moments. Um, but he was, you know, he was an articulate writer and a speaker and was, you know, a student body president at Wesley. And, and it's like, you know, fast forward to the 80s and the 90s and, and Barlow discovers personal computers. Um, and he just, jump through early deadhead communities, uh, specifically on the well, which was an online uh, portal started by the whole Earth catalog that I mentioned before, Stuart Brand. Um, Barlow became, you know, just this, this huge figure in the, in the early online world and became involved in, in, you know, sort of, you know, liberties, civil, civil liberties 
I guess you would say. And in 1990, he formed the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is sort of like the ACL, the ACLU of the Internet. Um, and it's sort of all, you know, he, he comes from a libertarian background. Actually, he was a, he was a Republican in, uh, in his home state of Wyoming. Um, and, uh, you know, was, was primed for a, for a state Senate run, um, but got, uh, got sidetracked. Uh, or actually lost one, and then got sidetracked into into the Electronic Frontier Foundation world. Um, and since then, he's become this, you know, really, you know, sort of pivot point between the old counterculture and the new counterculture. You know, he's 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 the connection point between Timothy Leary and the Grateful Dead, and somebody like Edward Snowden, who who he's now, you know, in communication with and working with on on, on various projects. Um, and he is really carrying forward something like the psychedelic philosophy into sort of the, the modern, you know, age of surveillance. Um, he, he, he and Robert Hunter, who's the Grateful Dead's other lyricist, talked about how they wanted to make their lyrics dogma-free. You know, they wanted them to be songs that people could sing along with, but they didn't want to convey any single ideology that people could grasp onto, like, you know, like a religion or a cult. And the Electronic Frontier Foundation, in a lot of ways, I feel like is a way to impose that same belief on the structures of the internet in general, that these, these structures are this great shared work and there shouldn't be any, you know, sort of dogma or ideology attached to them. They should be here to, to, to serve us in the same way that, you know, you know, plumbing well, serves us or something like that. Both well, well, a little bit more, a little bit more intellectual content. Well, he, he, uh, I think I think their organization is EFF dot org, but uh, yeah. uh, it, it, it's uh, it, it's a wonderful organization, and uh, they they fight for privacy too for for individuals on the internet. Yeah. So it, it, it's a, an important movement, and I just find it fascinating to have it uh, to find that that it is closely connected with your book and the psychedelic movement. And it's just totally astounding. But you go through this book, and again, the book is Heads, A Biography of Psychedelic America. There's many more stories in here. I mean, of course, music is pervasive throughout this. It's kind of the the circulatory system uh, in, in which all the all the cells of these stories, whether they be government, uh, the Supreme Court decision in 1991 was fascinating, and and uh, um, and the impact and the reaction, uh, the, the, actually the ingenuity um, uh, of how um, uh, LSD manufacturers uh, responded to the Supreme Court decision. Um, it, it, it's, it's a fascinating book, totally surprising. Uh, it's Heads, a biography of psychedelic America. And uh, Jesse Jarno is the author. And Jesse, I want to thank you so much for coming on the Tim Danahy Show. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Cool. My pleasure, Tim. I, that was really fun. I, I enjoyed it, too. So uh, hopefully we'll get you back here on your next book. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I'll also uh, just mention real quick that I uh, run the Heads News account over on Twitter if, if people are, are into that. Uh, world, but I but, but I post uh, current psychedelic news stories and history items and and various research stuff that's sort of ongoing. Uh, why, why don't we? Uh, why don't you give me that again? Uh, is it heads? Uh, how how can people find out more? Oh, so it's uh, on Twitter. The account name is Heads News. Just you know, Heads News, one word. Uh, I'm on Facebook as Heads Book. And uh, I run a, uh, a weekly newsletter as well. If you go to tinyletter.com slash headsnews, that's another, uh, another 
another place to find me. And uh, all my upcoming book events and things are listed at headstalks.com and everything before that is also summarized there. Outstanding. Uh, Jesse, it's been a real pleasure and I want to thank you very much for coming on the Tim Dan Show. Cool. Thanks so much, Tim. Have a good one. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, you got love.